Are you a home educator starting Latin and feeling overwhelmed? Are you a Latin teacher looking for new inspiration and ideas? Or are you a casual learner beginning your journey into ancient languages? If so, this podcast is for you. In each episode, language teachers and experts come together to share their knowledge and experience with you in an accessible, fun, and inspirational format. We'll break it all down for you, from teaching tips, to choosing a curriculum, to staying motivated and keeping it fun. We hope this podcast helps you become the best undead language learner you can be, wherever you are on your journey. Hello, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of Demystifying Latin and Greek with me, Ann Phillips, and my co-host, Kirsten Jaqua, the Hello. doctor. The doctor. <laughs> yes, and the soon-to-be soon doctor, who, didn't you have an approximate sort of timeline set for your dissertation being completed? Yes, yeah, so let's just say June 23, so. Ooh, June 23. Coming That's... up coming up faster than i think so soon to be doctor as i said yeah it'll be great all right so uh i don't know maybe a brief update on our careers at the moment not that we can say too much since it's ongoing but what are you, how is how is your teaching life Ooh, we just completed quarter one so each semester at my school is composed of two quarters so we completed quarter one. We met with a lot of parents, which was actually pretty fun. It was cool. I got to learn a lot about my students and about their general uh, experience. And I got a whole lot of supportive people. One of the parents brought me a cold drink from a refrigerated bag that she brought to the meetings, which was so sweet. Oh, nice. Uh, so I actually had a lot of fun with that. And I just got the green light to do some after-school tutoring for Latin, which I am super excited about. Oh, nice. Nice. Yep, we are in our first quarter, and we are trying to cram as much Latin into a short amount of time as possible, but I'm still enjoying myself immensely. So, yeah, I think that's kind of all I can say about that, but it's still a lot of fun and it has been a very interesting learning experience for me because there are a lot of things that I haven't had to think about for a while, like hmm. the different declensions of nouns. And that is the most interesting thing about teaching the sort of beginning Latin. And by that, I mean, any point in Latin where you're introducing new concepts and you're not just reading texts with fully equipped students it's very interesting because you think about all these concepts that you haven't worried about in a long time. You're like, oh, wow, how are imperfects constructed? Mm -hmm. And why does this case do what it does? And students will ask you questions and you're like, I know it does this, but I haven't thought about how to conceptually explain it in a while. Yep. And that has been an interesting challenge for me is uh, especially because one, you learn uh, one set of patterns in Latin and then you very quickly find out that there are other sets of patterns that don't really look the same. And how do you explain how that happened? And sometimes the answer is nobody knows. <laughs> or language is weird. Yes, language I, is weird. <laughs> did I tell the story about the professor I had who sent me on a wild goose chase for a grammatical construction? And after I couldn't find the answer, he finally 
responded to me with, your logic is excellent. Language is not always logical. Oh, nice. Such well, an infuriating answer, but I've never forgotten it. That is, yeah, that's a really interesting teaching tool. All right. So today we are going to try to keep this episode a little bit on the shorter side. That um, will be the goal in general will be to have episodes more between 30 and 40 minutes. Rather than over an hour. <laughs> We're a little over enthusiastic. So we'll try to stay on track. And today we've had a lot of messages about since our podcast is demystifying Latin and Greek, why have we not talked about Greek? And a lot of our listeners are very interested in Latin and Latin is awesome. And there's a lot to say about it. And there's a lot of resources for it. But we also, um, Annie and I also love Greek very much. And both of us did our dissertations or are doing dissertation on Greek texts specifically. And as much as we love teaching Latin, we would love to talk to you our listeners a little bit about learning Greek. Why should you do it? What is it? What does it encompass? What does it entail? And we can talk just a little bit about some Greek textbooks if we get a chance towards the end. Yeah, which would be a later episode potentially if there's enough interest to go kind of go through all of the different Greek textbooks. I mean, Greek is not quite as popular right now as Latin is because there's a little bit more of a barrier because the alphabet is a little different and there's not quite as many resources out there and available. People are still doing it. There are some schools and like your school, Kirsten, I know your school is, is working on building up a Greek program. Yes. And I teach the seniors Greek and it is awesome. Yeah. I'm super jealous about that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I love it. It's a good fun. Well, there's somebody from, I forget who it was from British history, who said something about, you know, everybody has to learn Latin, but I would let my students learn Greek as a treat. It is a treat. And all of my students are really enjoying themselves. We got to recite the first seven lines of the Iliad in meter for the juniors. And oh, everyone awesome. was so thrilled about it. The juniors loved it. The seniors loved it. So much enthusiasm. And one of the things about learning Greek, um, we'll talk a little about potentially independent learning of Greek, but at least in our context, it's like being a part of a special club for the students who are in it. It's so unique and the classes are fairly small and we're hoping to break into larger Greek classes with more students, but there is a certain treat to learning it. As you say, it's slightly less common than Latin. And so I think the students who are in it feel a special status. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's, it's in my experience, it largely seems because um, people there, there is a little bit more of that kind of initial barrier into getting into it, which is primarily learning the language or sorry, not learning the language, the alphabet. And uh, once you get past that, I think it gets a lot easier, but it's kind of getting people past that is a little bit difficult. So I, I think what we'll, what we should probably cover first is let's talk about kind of what is encompassed by the study of classical greek ancient, there are yes. yeah, ancient greek there are a few different kind of subcategories within kind of ancient greek broadly speaking we have kind of like you know the the classical greek and then we have koine greek which is new testament greek um 
We can so get we into have, more detail. Yeah, I think the most common form of ancient Greek that you'll see when you look at a textbook for ancient Greek, it's typically going to be Attic Greek that mm-hmm. they teach you. And this is sort of the the Greek used by Plato and Euripides and all those sort of centered characters on, in Mosthenes. Centered on the these. city of Athens. Yeah, centered around the city of Athens, which was that, as we talked about in that previous episode about the history of these languages, classical Athens produced a lot of literature. And that's why the way we teach ancient Greek is kind of centered around the texts that come out of classical Athens largely, because that's what we have the bulk of, and there's so much to work with. Right. And even within that paradigm, like my dissertation author, for example, Herodotus, he wrote in what we call the Ionic dialect, because he was a Greek from Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And they had a little bit of their own dialect going on. It's still very, it's still readable. It's still recognizable. I can read it just fine. I don't need a ton of extra information in order to read it. Um, But that was a little bit more, you see more of that with ancient Greek than you do with Latin. We don't have the dialects issue. The dialects, and we discussed this a little bit too, when we talked about the background, Greece was that constellation of city states. Mm. And that meant there were a lot of dialects. There wasn't quite the way that ancient Rome, which had this big empire and, and imperialist spread across a large area, had more consistency across Latin than, than Greece did because they weren't all one empire until Alexander the Great, which we're about to get to, but they weren't all one empire. They were all these little city-states. And so even my dissertation's content on Euripides, there's a bunch of dis- different dialects used even within the ancient Greek tragedies, um, the lyric poems that have Doric dialect thrown in there where the Adas turn into alphas. Um, That's a very technical thing to say, but the dialects change slightly how words are spelled and how the endings go and the forms. Um, But if you learn Attic Greek, it's kind of like a foundation, a springboard for getting into the rest. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's very much the most, it's considered the, the highest form of Greek or, you know, depending on who you ask in antiquity, the purest form of Greek. And by high and pure, we don't mean it in an elitist sense, although some of the Greeks did, but (laughs) it's more of a, it's high Greek in the sense that it's like fancy Greek. It's the most formal form of Greek, like speaking, like writing an email professionally or writing a very highbrow academic book versus writing a, a letter to some friend, you know, right, which, diff- those different levels. Right. Which had, and it had the most kind of written about it in terms of, you know, this is correct Attic Greek versus quote unquote. this is, yeah, quote unquote, this is not correct. So it's, it's complicated. It is, yeah, quite complicated, but Attic Greek is kind of the foundation for all of these kind of other things. So then what happens a little bit later, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, we have Alexander the Great who comes along and uh, conquers a lot of the known world at the time, which meant the spread of Greek across the Mediterranean, which eventually leads to a little bit more standardization of the dialects and the vocabulary. Certain features of the language drop out over time. Um So yeah, there's that. And then um, a little bit of a sub area is Homeric Greek. Homeric Homeric poetry 
it's actually kind of before it's pre-classical Athens. Mm-hmm. It's slightly different. Again, it's like a sort of like a slightly different dialect, but it's really a proto. It's it's very similar. And if you learn Attic Greek, you'll be able to adapt and learn Homeric Greek. But there are some differences in the forms and the style and such mm-hmm. things that you'll notice um, when you read Homeric Greek. So that's almost its own area. But again, if you learn Attic, you can get into that. Yeah. And then the last one, which Annie is more familiar with than myself. The world of the uh, the New Testament, which is also called Koine or Common Greek is what that um, Koine word means, which by the time we get to when the New Testament is being written down, Greek had become a, a fairly common language. It had become the language of trade, and it was a language that you needed to know at least a little bit in order to kind of get by. And so this made sense for you know, the, the dissemination of the New Testament. And then also the, um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, is and written. Both, yeah, both of these, these, um, these pieces of literature, both of these were written in Koine with the express intent of making them accessible to as mm-hmm. many people as possible. So they did not write these in Attic Greek. They were written in that more common form of Greek that, you know, would have been used for trade or more common speaking because they were not meant to be quote unquote high, high literature. <laughs> they were meant to be something anyone could read and be a part of. So there was an intent in that making them the Koine, the common Greek that anyone could read or more people could read. Right, which is definitely very true of the New Testament. The Septuagint is extremely complicated because <laughs> there are there are yes. debates about, you know, how many versions were there and you know, even who wrote the Septuagint. There's lots of kind of debates that go on about that. But generally speaking, that has become kind of its own area of study. I think for probably most of the people who would be listening to this podcast, that yes. would probably be an area that you would directly be interested in. And there are avenues directly into Koine Greek without having to study Attic Greek. That said, if you study Attic Greek, if you are interested in reading those texts and also interested in reading Koine Greek, start with Attic. Yes. I started with Attic Greek. And when I was handed a piece of Koine Greek in year one of studying Attic, it felt so easy. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so easy to read. I have no trouble. So if you want to read Koine, but you also want to read the others, start with Attic. Yes, definitely. Going from Koine to Attic is much harder. Yes. That said, so these are sort of, this is the basic layout of what you're stepping into when you embark on your adventure of learning ancient Greek. These are your options, your avenues. Right. And if you know specifically that you are interested in only the New Testament, there are ways to do that. But it is still very much worth studying Attic Greek, at least for my own, my in my own personal study, I have enjoyed kind of seeing the development of Greek over time mm-hmm. because I've, you know, I've read a lot of Homer as all of us have to do if you are a classicist and just have kind of to get, oh, yeah, to get to, yes, no, for sure. No, I love Homer, but you're know, being Homer's able awesome. to see that progression over time and it does give you a lot more of a background to put the new testament into i think Mm -hmm. it lives in that tradition that history of ancient greek it's part of it yeah all of these texts you know they they are part of the same tradition in many ways yes definitely so 
now that we've kind of gone over that, what would be, I guess we kind of have to talk a little bit about the Good applications old. or the, you know, the practicality. Why would we study Greek when we can study Latin instead? Or why would we do both? So, yeah, the benefits of learning Greek are in large part similar to the ones of learning Latin. And we'll tell you many of the same things, obviously, that, Mm -hmm. well, if you study Greek, obviously, you open yourself up to a world that is not open to you purely from doing Latin. You have access to language and literature that is written in Greek. You can read the originals of Euripides, Plato, Demosthenes, whom I mentioned earlier, Herodotus, Aristotle. Thucydides. There's these great works of history. Herodotus and Thucydides, I think, are both fascinating in their own ways. Very and different still, ways. And to this day, incredibly influential. Oh, very much. Yeah. Very Herodotus well is often called the father of history, right? Yep. And Thucydides is a very different historical voice that I think in many ways, more people emulate Thucydides than emulate Herodotus. Yeah, I've heard Thucydides characterized as the father of what we call real politic. And he, a lot of his uh, historical debates that he includes and a lot of his political theory is still very much cited, explored often in you know, political theory and that sort of thing. The tragedians, of course, uh, the extant tragedians, we have Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, all three influential in different ways. Euripides is your guy, specifically. Euripides, yes. I will advocate for Euripides. But Aeschylus and Sophocles, both very fascinating in their own ways. Aeschylus has the trilogy of Orestes, the Oresteia, and Sophocles has Antigone, one of the most cited ancient tragedies. Mm -hmm. They're all, and then, of course, Plato, a very influential philosopher, and many, many others. So obviously these texts have had huge influences on various aspects of cultures that live on today. So it gives you a cultural understanding of this piece of ancient Greece, and it gives you some cultural context for a lot of the things that live into today that you cannot otherwise access to the same degree. I am a big believer in the fact that if you can read something in its original language, it opens up a part of the mind of the culture that produced it that you can't fully wrap yourself around if you read a translation. There is great value to reading a translation, but you get such a unique and awesome experience if you read it in its own language. And even if you just study the language for a year, it opens things in your mind that you would not otherwise get to think about or explore or understand. Yeah, definitely. So, nerdy reasons, but delightful ones nonetheless. Yeah, and I mean, a- this is all very much, it's worth pursuing purely for its own sake. It's a beautiful language. It is. There's so, yeah, and Annie will advocate for the prose, which the beauty I of also prose. love. The beauty of prose. Prose is beautiful. I would never argue yeah, with that. Yeah, it is. No, it's so, just, it has more of a reputation of being, you know, stuffy or what I mean, because Plato has this reputation for being, you know, the stuffy prosaic writer, which is not true. If you actually <laughs> read him in the Greek, he sounds very stuffy in translation, in my very humble opinion. And the translations of Plato that I've had to read, and then now I am currently in the progress and in the project of reading the entire corpus of Plato in Greek. And let me tell you. <laughs> What an artist. He's, oh yeah. Amazing construction and the way that the arguments are built and the 
back and forth cross questioning style that he does. It, it's it's artful. And when he, he uses a very what's interesting to me specifically about Plato is he doesn't use a huge vocabulary. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he uses a somewhat limited vocabulary, but he does such interesting things with it. And you just don't get that when you're reading it in translation. So, yeah, that's but my that's, pitch. <laughs> those are some reasons to read those. I obviously am a lover of poetry and I think I don't need to explain to you what is beautiful about poetry for the most part. It's in Greek, though, as I am regularly trying to tell my students, poetry is different in Latin and Greek. It's not about rhyming at the end of the line. It's very much about the myth, the meter, the rhythm. And it's amazing to learn how something has a beat and a rhythm in another language. What to them makes order and structure and beauty in language because it's different from what makes order structure and beauty in the English language when you mm -hmm. have a poem and that's a unique experience and when I read the lyric poetry in the tragedies which is very challenging but rewarding I, you learn so much about what why do they put the lyric poetry in a different dialect they often like to lean into doric dialect for the lyric poems in tragedy why you know what is it about that that says music to them this dialect has some special bond with musicality so there's just so much to learn in that so we were both of us will tell you it's worth pursuing for its own sake for the reasons of all the beauty and all the context and <laughs> all the amazing things you can access but there are some quote-unquote practical reasons to learn Greek as well. You access a world of medical language. Medicine is closely tied to Greek in yes. so many ways. The um, ophthalmologist is an eye doctor because ophthalmoi is the word for eyes. Uh, cardiologist, cardia is heart. You know, we can go on for days about all the words that are drawn from Greek in the medical world. And studying Greek will decidedly improve your performance if you want to go into any branch of medicine. Yeah, I have definitely found myself being able to translate a lot of medical terms just on the strength of my vocabulary. Yep. Otherwise, I would not have had any clue what some of these terms mean. <laughs> We have, we can understand a lot more of the doctor's notes, assuming you can read the handwriting. We can understand a lot more of the notes mm -hmm. than most people can because of that background. I usually don't need any terms, any medical terms of a disease or a body part or anything that's said in medical terminology. I usually don't need it explained because the Greek tells me right off the bat. Yeah. In addition to that, there's classic answer of what do these languages do for you attention to detail yeah and you know the the practice of close reading much like in latin i think greek is going to force you to do a lot of close reading even more than it would if you were reading latin because you especially the when accents. you're yeah the accents and the the, the ways forms work and having to pay attention to the alphabet you know when it's kind of new and different for you it's yeah it's gonna it's gonna improve your ability to do that a lot so we would like to give sort of a brief background on the two of us since we both wrote our dissertations on greek for how we got into greek what we yes. love about it and then talk just a little bit about what resources are out there for yes. greek learners 
Would you like to start? Yeah, I guess I can, I can do that. I learned Latin independently first, and this is when I was probably 15 or 16. And I became very interested in Cicero and Virgil, but you can't really go too far into studying the Romans and Latin literature without running into the Greeks. And this started happening to me because Cicero was talking about Plato so much and talking about Herodotus and talking about all these Greeks that he had read in the original Greek. So the problem I ran into is, well, darn, I want to be able to read all this too. So I did sit down with a bunch of Greek textbooks over a summer, actually the summer before I went to college, and I just cranked it out over the summer every single day. Um, because I was really very obsessed with trying your to own? Yeah. Wow. I was trying to get in I was I was really hungry for these texts. I really wanted this. And that's what I did. Actually when I went to college, I signed up for the Greek placement test. Didn't feel like I had any clue what I was doing, but I did manage to place out of the intro classes. So I had I got into third semester Greek, which was about half grammar half textbook and then the other half we spent reading Xenophon but the semester after that I started reading Homer in the Homeric class and that was like it was a trial by fire experience but that was when I knew no this is what I meant to do this is what I love doing because Homer you do have to learn a little bit his dialect the vocabulary how to read epic poetry but once you do it's like being swept along a current it just takes you with it and that's what i felt like we read the first four books of the odyssey and it was just it was amazing Um, homer's great yeah one of the things that you realize with a lot of these authors is once you adjust to their style which once you've learned the basics of the language doesn't take you too long yeah yeah, you can read really. You can get to read really fluidly with individual authors, and Homer is one of those where, yeah, once you get it, you get it, and it's awesome, and you can read so fluently, so so smoothly. Yeah, a lot of lines, a lot of individual words, a lot of phrases repeat quite mm-hmm. often, and get yeah, oral can, poetry. Yeah, yeah, and you, once you get into that, you can just read a hundred lines in, in one go, very easy. So it's yeah, that was that was great, and then you know I. I did a lot of other authors after that in college. We did Plato. I did a lot of Thucydides. We did. Oh, I did a lot of tragedy. So I have had to read a lot of Aeschylus, Sophocles. Well, I know. I, I say had to. I don't mean it. In I mean I got to read. <laughs> I'm gonna um, be offended about it every time. I know. What did I? I think I mostly read Aeschylus and Sophocles in college. Actually, <gasps> now I'm offended again. <laughs> I did. I did read a lot of Euripides in grad okay. school i'm so. less offended now okay i i did not do greek on my own i learned latin and when i started college i my very first semester i took beginning greek i still remember my my first greek teacher probably bears a lot of the credit for inspiring me to carry on i remember she was funny and charismatic and so enthusiastic and passionate about greek that she just made me want to feel that way too. And she would come to class and say, I was reading my Homer this morning. I was like, oh, sure. <laughs> but I was also super jealous. I was sitting there like, I wish I could just get up in the morning and be like, hmm, I'm going to read a little Homer just for fun. And now you can. And now I can. But I remember back then I was like, oh, who can do that? That's crazy. And then I realized once I'd done just a little bit, I was like, oh, it's actually not as 
intense as scary as I thought it was. I thought she was saying something super wild and intense. And um, if she'd come into the classroom saying, I was just casually reading Demosthenes, that might've been pretty wild. <laughs> but Homer is not not as as crazy as that. It's once, as Annie said, you get the phrases and the style down, it comes very naturally. Yeah, and it's stories. It's not you know, po- high political speech or you know, yes. political invective. Or Polemics. It's, yeah, it's just stories. It's a great story. Yeah, so I, I was really inspired by her enthusiasm. She may be out there listening somewhere. Thank you for that. Uh, I loved that class. It was so much fun. And I kind of got carried along on that current. I finished beginning Greek those first two semesters in college and launched into those early, early translations. And I think actually Koine Greek, the New Testament Greek was one of the first things that got me super excited because we read some passages of New Testament Greek and I was like, wow, I can actually read this. It's Mm -hmm. real text and it's making sense. And I'm, I'm reading full sentences and I'm not having too much trouble and it's cool. And I am seeing new things about these stories that I already know in the new Testament that I didn't see or understand before. I'm seeing it in a new way and it's really exciting So that carried me onward. I went on to do, I think Euripides was one of my very early Greek. Once I got out of beginning Greek, I did Lysias and then Euripides. And that was where just the light came on. And I was like, I want to do more of this. I want to read more of this. I want to dig into it. It was just delightful and exciting. And once I got further into grad school for the first time, I, I got to teach a Greek class. And I say that with the, from the bottom of my heart, I got to, and I loved it so much. It was just an absolute joy um, to share that same delight that my Greek teacher brought to me with baby Greek students on my own. It was just so much fun. I loved it. And on we go. I'm still here teaching Greek. I know that's that is really awesome. It's like you you find the things you love to do. You'll end up you'll find ways to keep doing it and share. I mean, that's for me, one of the most delightful things I think you'll find if you take Greek, if you get to take the Greek class, (laughs) you'll find that most of the teachers that you'll meet there are there with the deepest, truest passion and love in their hearts and they bring it every day. I mean, I'm always excited to come to my classes. I'm always excited to share these things that I love. And in these classes, they're small, they're personable. All of my students really get to see, to know me and I get to know them. And that means that I get to be there for the being the best support to them that I can be. And that's a really special experience. It is. That's something I've noticed. I mean, I'm teaching Latin, which you know, I, I do very, very much love latin i read latin every day too but it is actually i'm not i don't have this feeling of oh i gotta go to work and teach today i don't have that feeling i had that it's easier to fall into that with more of the kind of general classes that we ta for where it feels like a lot more of a chore i have not encountered that with latin yet it feels it's it is like something i look forward to every day and teaching languages is such a cool experience because you're teaching somebody to communicate. You're teaching them to create meaning, to craft Mm -hmm. meaning. And while you do that in every discipline, to some extent, there's something really fascinating about teaching people to create meaning through a new medium. And Greek allows you to do that with a new alphabet. And I have to say, a lot of Greek students coming in who have to learn the alphabet feel very intimidated by it. Mm -hmm. But it's a beautiful script. And it's an exciting script. And 
believe it or not, a lot of these things can just be made really fun. Mm-hmm. Like I've been teaching accents. People tend to hate accents and I don't know why. Yeah, I did in the beginning, but I, I grew to appreciate them later. <laughs> they're valuable pieces of meaning because Greek um, has tones. It pitches up, it pitches down, up and down, rising and falling tones. And we don't have anyone who speaks the ancient Greek language anymore. So we couldn't carry those tones on by just speaking and sharing them aloud. So we put them on the paper to make sure that we don't lose them because otherwise we would lose a very important piece of the meaning of the language. Those nuances are valuable. But that said, I almost turn accenting into a game. It's a a call and response game in my classroom. And I'll say, is this a long or a short ultima? It's long. What does that mean? The accent can go all the way back. Mm-hmm. Where does it, is it going to go all the way back? Yes, it's a verb. and you know, Or no, it's a noun. And the accent likes to sit on the second one. So we'll kind of call in response. And one of my students will create just these comic strips where she talks about where accents go. As long as you have you know a spirit and a joy about it, there are ways to teach these things that don't feel like a chore. Yeah. Now, that is definitely very true. And I think most, I I haven't personally met any who don't, most teachers of these ancient languages have come at it out of love and out of excitement and passion. And most of the, and if you take these languages and Greek, especially because it's so unique and unusual, you'll find that that is true, that you'll have an excited teacher who's delighted to have you there and who has so much attention and focus for you. Yeah, no, that is that is definitely. I mean, that's been my experience too. All of my teachers have been fantastic. Everybody loves what they're doing, and I still, you know, deeply love studying all of this stuff. Even if I am just, you know, if I'm doing something else in my day to day life, I will always have something that I'm reading and studying. And you know, I think just for that alone it is very much worth it so i think at this point we should probably just transition into our final little segment here just talking about do we want to briefly just get into a little bit of resources out there a little bit yeah i granted the two of us have had have less resources for greek both because there are less and because there's less opportunity alas to teach ancient greek um I, in general, for language learners, um, Annie can get a little bit into the Koine. I'll start with the Attic Greek. A very common one for learning Attic Greek. There are two very common ones. Um, Atenadze is a common one. It's a pretty good one. It has a narrative that goes throughout the book of the story of characters that you follow through their journey. There are two volumes. There's a book one, book two. And it'll walk you all the way through building the blocks of how to learn and understand Attic Greek. It gives you the grammar, but it also gives you those readings. And that makes it extra fun. Yeah. So Atenadze is a common one. Um, Variety of opinions on Atenadze. It's a bit of a slightly older textbook, I think. Not super old, but slightly older. And some people disagree with the way it does things or the way it introduces some of the cultural aspects of ancient Greece. So there's some controversy surrounding Atenod's day, but overall it's a fairly sound textbook. And then there's Alpha to Omega and Shelmerdine, uh, which bear some similarities in that I think that they introduce material at a good pace for a beginner. 
Um, Alpha to Omega is a great one for it's it's pretty slow at the beginning. I think it has a good pacing. It gets faster as you go into the thick of it and towards the end. What I love about Alpha to Omega, I like the way it introduces the grammar. It uses paideo as a model verb, which is kind of strange, but um, that's what it does. And I also love that Alpha to Omega uses adapted real quote unquote real Greek texts. And as a learner from Alpha to Omega, it made me excited because I felt like I was diving into the real Greek really quickly. And that made me enthusiastic about what I was doing. So I have a personal nostalgic love for Alpha to Omega. It was my original Greek textbook and I still love it and I do recommend it. I think it's a great resource. Yeah, I used two. I had a Hanson and Quinn which is, it's called Greek and Intensive Course. That's kind of what I started with. It's very stuffy and it's very dense. I actually switched from that to uh, Keller and Russell's Learn to Read Greek, which is, it presents the information differently and better, I think, but it is, it's still much more kind of college level. But what I liked about Learn to Read Greek is the, the textbook is actually really huge and it like lies flat really easily, which is really nice. And it has really nice typeset. I'm a big fan of that. Um, I thought those were actually really good. I thought Learn to Read Greek actually presented information very helpfully and also had a lot of quote unquote real Greek passages for you to read. And the passages get longer as you go on. So I thought that was, I, I liked that. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with those two, but those are also good resources. I would say Ateno Day and Alpha to Omega, if you want to teach Greek to a high schooler or someone of that age group are better for a start. Uh, I think there's also a, hey, Andrew, teach me some Greek, which is kind of a kid's version of learning Greek that my brother used when he was in early high school. Yeah, there's not as much out there that's no. I mean, because we have so much of you know Latin for children that's aimed at like, elementary school. There really isn't much of that for Greek yet. Not really, but there's there's a little bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it, it's there's there's gro- there's a growing amount of of stuff. But those are that's a good sort of starter kit for Greek curricula, and then yeah. Koine Greek. I'll leave to Annie Koine to is. Yeah, Koine is a little bit more accessible for kind of self-learning if you are trying to get into yes. it by yourself. Uh, the ones that I've used, I, I really like a New Testament Greek primer, which is by S.M. Baugh, who is a seminary professor. Um, and that's a really nice, very accessible one. Also, the one of the things that I really like about it is it's really large and it lies flat. And it's <laughs> I, that, apparently that's a theme with me. You know what you like in a book. Yeah. And then there's the other one that's more more dense, a little bit more compact, more difficult, I think, is Basics of Biblical Greek by Bill Mounts, which he's a very good teacher. And what's great about him is he has a lot of online resources. Like he has a ton of YouTube videos and he's very funny and very personable in his YouTube videos. So you can kind of use the book and use his online resources as well. Yes, in that vein, I almost forgot to mention that Atenadze does have a lot of online resources that accompany okay. it. So that is a benefit to yeah, Atenadze. I am not aware of any online resources that accompany Alpha to Omega. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there are. Yeah, I have not looked into that. But we can uh, make a list yeah, that's of definitely... resources that we mentioned to go along with this uh, podcast episode. Yeah, definitely 
and probably eventually if there is enough interest worth kind of its own shorter episode but personally as as uh, well we are both particularly focused in greek scholarship but as teachers we do a lot more latin Mm -hmm. but personally i am very uh delighted that listeners have asked for this that makes me happy also that listeners have asked for things at all because it's lovely to know that people are listening yeah no it's we are we are i am surprised and very grateful so i think that is where we will end it today but walete walete omnes thanks for listening if you like this podcast please be sure to subscribe for future episodes For more information, you can visit our website, museoneducation.com. That's spelled M-U-S-E-I-O-N, education.com. Also linked in the show notes. We wish you a happy language learning journey.